Good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. We're grateful that you're with us. Uh, one conviction we have around here is that we believe Jesus is our chief shepherd, and he is, full of, uh, he is full of grace and truth, and he is who we follow, and because he is full of grace and truth, we as a church seek to reflect that same fullness in, in how we uh, do ministry, how we teach, and how we live. We believe no one is beyond the saving and redeeming power of the gospel, and if you're new to exploring who Jesus is and what it means to actually become a follower of Jesus, that Jesus described to us in Scripture, I want you to know that we're grateful that you're with us. We don't believe you're here by accident, and we pray for all of us that we would have a attitudes and uh, uh, hearts that would be open to His grace and truth transforming us this morning. Our first impressions team is going to be handing out the connection card booklets now. These go down the rows. Uh, every household fill out a card. This is a key way for you to communicate with uh, leadership around here, whether it be something, a next step the Lord is calling you to, as simple as contact info needing updated, or some sort of prayer request, or something we can be uh, rejoicing with you about with the Lord. A couple reminders. Fourth grade parents, uh, a reminder, you've got a pizza party after the service. Your kids do at, uh, you should have seen something about that. If you have questions about that, talk to Bix or Jane, okay? And then VBS, you'll, if you're new with us, we don't typically have a tiki hut over our soundboard, but uh, VBS, <clears throat> we uh, had a couple weeks ago. If you want a CD or DVD of the music, make sure you get that today because we're going to return those this week. If Bix and the mission team could come up now, that'd be great. Before we get into the message, we want to pray for uh, Bix Bixler and uh, his wife Julie and Crosspointer Patty Pearson and their team who is going to the Middle East to serve this summer. And so we want to hear more about how we can be praying for them and the work that they'll be involved in, and then we want to pray for them. I got the mic. Watch out. So um, I'm actually going to pass it down. If you don't know me, I'm Bix, and uh, Bix Bixler is like Zig Ziglar. So um, I'll start here on my right. I'm Katie Seibel. Bryce Harshberger. I'm Bix. Michelle Gladstone. Ed Hodel. Linda Hodel. I'm Michelle Harshberger. Patty Pearson. Michelle, you got to hold it up closer. Um, on behalf of the team, I, I want to thank you for your support as we go into the Holy Land and as we go into the West Bank. Uh, we leave on July 7th, and we'll be going to a little village called Zababdi. And if you um, look on a, a map of the Holy Land, um, Zababdi is about 20 minutes northwest of Nablus which is Old Shechem, Mount Gerizim, Mount of Blessing and Cursing is uh, about 20 minutes away. And it's also very close to where Jesus healed the 10 lepers and the one came back and thanked him. So it, it's a very historic little town. It's only about 3,500 to 4,000 people, of which 60% you know, to 65% are what you call Christian and in the Holy Land, you're either Muslim or Christian. If you're a Christian, you're probably either Catholic, um, Greek Orthodox, or a mixture of the two called Malachites. And then about 1% to 2% are um, born-again believers. 
So we're going into the um, Zababdi. We'll be doing vacation Bible school from 3 till about 5.30, quarter to 6 in the afternoon. Uh, we'll be working around the church and working in the area in the mornings and resting a little bit in the afternoons before VBS. And then at night, we'll do home visits. And uh, home visits, we go in and we share the gospel with adults and with children. So, um, and with VBS, we're expecting up to 100 kids every day for five days. And then on Saturday, we're going to take them swimming. And uh, there is a pool in Zababdi. Water is scarce. I don't know how they do it, but they built a new pool about four years ago. And from what I know, it's a, it's a very nice pool. And one of the big reasons that we're going there is to support Pastor Sammy. And Sammy has been a believer for about 10 or 15 years. And um, his church is very small. And it's about, oh, 10, 12 women and about three or four men. So he needs the support. They're building, a, they're trying to build a new church. They bought the property. And uh, hopefully with this or prayerfully with the young people and getting them there, getting their parents there, it'll help his church to grow. And Dave said if there's any prayer uh, requests, uh, if you could be praying for us. Now, I have a whole bunch of people praying for me, but most of them are like under 10. So... <laughs> And, well, a lot of them are named Stalter, too, like, you know, Dave and Mark's family. So, but um, if you could pray that the team would have safe travel and health, because we never know just what bug's going to bite us and, and if we're going to get sick. But we would truly appreciate safe travel and, and being healthy. I, I appreciate it. And Dave? Now you can preach 15 more minutes. <laughs> All right, uh, let's pray for these guys. <clears throat> Father God, we do pray that as they uh, do ministry this next month, that uh, you would not only keep them safe, keep them healthy, uh, and to do that not just for their comfort, but so that they could uh, do work for you and to, uh, to be your hands and feet on the ground there. I pray that uh, the seeds of your gospel would be planted in fertile soil, that hearts and ears would be open, whether it be adults or kids. Uh, we pray that uh, details would, would be worked out, that, that things that they would run into that uh, might surprise them, that we know that they don't surprise you. And so, uh, Father God, be out ahead of them, preparing good works in advance for them to do. And I thank you, thank you for that they have, uh, this team has hearts and a desire to walk in them to walk in those good works, to glorify you in doing so. And so we pray for their relationships with one another. You'd strengthen those relationships while they serve. And that, uh, Lord, that they wouldn't just be praying that work would happen in those that they minister to, but work would happen, spiritual transformation would happen in their own hearts as they serve. We know that uh, your grace is powerful. We know that your grace is sufficient. And so may they go full of grace and truth and empowered by your Holy Spirit as they serve. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. If you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to Galatians 6. If you sit toward the front of the room, you notice that we have a cricket here in our uh, living room. And so I looked around a little bit this morning. 
Um, I couldn't find it, all right, clearly, I couldn't find it. Um, if someone wants to come in tomorrow, um, I'll buy you lunch. You can go dig around and try to find that cricket. But uh, we're just going to enjoy the sound of crickets uh, and try not to make too many jokes about it as we go. All right? Um, if you don't own a good Bible, uh, get a free one at Guest Connections afterwards. There's encouragement in there about how to read Scripture, where to start, and those kind of things. We're in the midst of a 13-week series called uh, Together, where we are looking at life in the New Testament church and what life looks like. We're in week four, so if you missed a week along the way, make sure you listen on our app or on our YouTube channel, those kind of things. In each of these Sundays, I pray you're catching some vision about what is ahead for us as a church. I failed last week to, uh, to make that vision clear and articulate that, and I apologize for that. But the, last week, the predominant uh, subject in the message was on elders and under-shepherds. I pray that as a church, we're continually raising up godly leaders who will serve as elders whether that be uh, over the next year or whether that be three, five, ten years down the road. What we need to begin to have when it comes to leadership uh, around here is we need to begin to have a, a rhythm and a, and a culture that says this is what we do. We equip, we encourage, and we uh, train leaders, not just for eldership, but for leadership around the local church. That is a desire, something we, we must grow in over the next year as a church. And so, I failed to kind of communicate some of that vision last week when we looked at eldership. Today, I want to get a clearer vision on what it looks like for us to walk together in community and then how that community is to respond when a member of that church community is trapped or overwhelmed in sin. Just like the subjects we looked at the past uh, few weeks, the subjects we'll look at in the weeks ahead, we have room to grow in this area. We've not arrived on this one. But again, just like eldership, if we make strides in this area, if we allow the Word of God to shape our beliefs and our actions, it will lead to a healthy, sustainable, flourishing church for decades. It will lead to a church that glorifies the Lord and is seeing the good news of Jesus actually change lives. Because that's the point, right? That's what we want to see happen. We want to see our Lord glorified, and we want to see His grace and truth continually change lives, both in those yet to be reached and in our lives and, and those of us who already have been reached and understand the good news. I'm calling this message, Together We Repent and Restore. Repent is a Bible word that shows up both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Matthew 3, 1 and 2 records this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you're new to the Bible, John the Baptist, his ministry began prior to the ministry of Jesus. He followed in the same pattern of Old Testament prophets who called people to repent. Prophets brought an awareness of, 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 of the people's sin, brought an awareness of God's character, His holiness, His justice toward that sin, as well as God's character of His grace and mercy and love for the person and His invitation to repent and receive that grace and receive that mercy. And then, so Jesus uh, begins his ministry then with the same word, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see the disciples follow in that same pattern. Paul follows in that same pattern. We follow in that same pattern as a New Testament church. So what's repentance? Well, it's a heart change that leads to a directional change. It's a heart change that leads to a belief change. To repent means to change your perspective, to no longer disagree with the Lord, but agree with the Lord and His Word. 
to change your focus from self to the Lord, from walking in darkness to walking in the light. Repent is an action word, an action word that takes place in your mind and heart and that will lead to an outward directional action change in your life. Repent is not feel really sorry for what you've done for a season of time and then return to what you've always done. That's not repentance. Yes, there's sorrow over sin. There's a godly sorrow that Scripture speaks of. But feeling sorry for what you've done and yet not not actually changing your minds or your, your heart about what the Lord says about that is not repentance. Repentance is the posture we take not only when we come to Christ for salvation, but it's the ongoing posture of a believer. It's where faith in Christ begins, and yet it's, it's the ongoing uh, posture that a believer takes following their conversion. So I repented in January 1993 when I got saved. But I continued in that habit because I wasn't suddenly free from remaining sin. Maybe you know what I mean. So I repent when, I, when the Spirit exposes idolatry in my heart. I repent when the Spirit exposes that I haven't loved my wife in a sacrificial or selfless Christ-like way. I repent when, when, when the Lord exposes works of the flesh happening in my life. I agree with the Lord about His Word. I agree with what He says about my new identity in Christ. And so I begin to walk in that new identity. I agree with that. In those moments, I don't want to remain in that sin but I want to agree with the Lord and walk in a new direction. It's always inward first. That, that repentance is always inward first. It's, it, because if, if all I do is try to change the outward symptoms of my life and fail to ask the Spirit to actually transform my heart, then lasting gospel change doesn't happen. John the Baptist said this in verse 2, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning, change your direction now, today. Change your mind about who the Lord is. The Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Get ready for Him. In that moment, it was His first coming. Now, we as the New Testament still preach repent for, the, for Jesus is coming again. It's a call to respond to the news that the King of Kings is coming, so prepare. Where is there evidence of repentance in your life right now? What has the Holy Spirit exposed recently that has led to a change of mind or a change of heart and then a change of action and direction? Your response to those questions is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I pray it encourages you of the Spirit's presence and His power in your life. And it would encourage you to remain in this posture of humility before the Lord. And wouldn't it be great if that was always the case? Wouldn't that be spectacular if we were always quick to repent? Wouldn't life in the family of God be a little less messy if we never fell into sin, if we never had any blind spots, if we always walked in the light, if we were never prone to pursue the things of the flesh rather than the Spirit? But we know that's not the case, right? We see it in our own hearts. We see it in others. So how do we, the family of God, walk together in the community? And how do we, the community of faith, respond when a member of our family is entangled or overwhelmed in sin? When repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, 
is not their first response. What's our motivation in, in our response? What's the goal? What should be the spirit or the tone of our response? For that counsel on those answers, we'll look to Galatians 6. Verse 1 says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. This is addressed to brothers and sisters in the church, and Paul is talking about a member of the church family that has been overtaken by sin. Their life has been entangled in sin. And there are two groups of people here that are in danger. Two people or groups of people that the Lord is at work in in this passage. Both the one who is entangled as well as the brother or sister who's been charged to respond or engage with him. See, one unbiblical assumption we make when it comes to how we walk with people who are caught in sin is we think the Lord is only at work in them or in that person. It's their issue. It's their sin. And what we fail to see is how the Lord is at work in us as we are alongside them. For instance, one area my wife and I uh, have done counseling in before are marriages that are in crisis or hurting. Spouses who have been unfaithful to one another, spouses who have been lazy or selfish in their pursuit of the other person or just kind of a condescending or critical spirit toward the other person or spouses who are turning to sinful escapes to try to numb the pain in their life. Well, in those times of counseling and friendship, you know what the Spirit is doing in me as a husband and, and Heather as a wife? Well, the Spirit is using that time to warn us, to give us this really sober reminder of we're just a handful of choices away from their situation. So it isn't, well, well Lord, work in that couple, but also, Lord, work in us. May you use this time of us walking alongside them as a brother or sister as they are overtaken in wrongdoing, may you use this time to shape and transform us as well, and not just them, to remind us that we are as in desperate need of God's grace as they are. So it's not this come down from on high, it's come alongside. So there are always two people or groups of people the Lord is at work in when someone is, over, <clears throat> is overtaken by sin. It's not just them, it's us, and ultimately the family of God as a whole. And specifically in this passage, Paul's addressing the potential that when you see someone entangled in sin, one temptation you face is falling into temptation yourself. So we should not approach someone entangled in sin, trapped in sin with the spiritually proud heart, because we'll end up falling ourselves. Proverbs uh, 16, 18 guarantees that. Pride goes before a fall. We'll be blind to our own weak flesh in our own remaining sinful nature. Pride is at the root. As we think about our response when we see someone in sin, I believe there are four big temptations. There are probably others, but four big ones that, that, uh, that we are prone to and Scripture calls us out of. The first temptation is, is when we see someone overtaken in sin, we ignore it and hope it goes away. So these people would reword verse 1 to read this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should just be indifferent and ignore the, ignore the situation for it's none of your business. See, Paul addresses that temptation in verse 2 when he says, carry one another's burdens. 
So burdens would include uh, sickness, uh, chronic disease, suffering, loss of a loved one, job loss, those kind of burdens. But it also includes our struggle against sin and the flesh. So you can't use, you can't say and somehow justify a biblical response of, well, that's their sin and that's none of my business. If so, we are ignoring verse 2 to carry one another's burdens. And we are ignoring our identity as brothers and sisters in the Lord who are called to love one another. When we ignore, we are missing the opportunity. We are missing the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ. We are missing the opportunity to, 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 uh, to, to bring His grace, His redeeming grace into someone's life. And we are missing that opportunity for that redeeming grace to change us as well, to transform us. Some believers ignore because they rip Jesus' words of do not judge so that you won't be judged out of its context. Listen to that verse in its context, verses 1 through 5 in Matthew 7. Jesus said this, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. We don't have time to, to go on a really long rabbit trail on this one, but I do want to talk about a couple things. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Believers should avoid making moral evaluations or discernments. He's not saying that. That we are not to judge or evaluate what is true and false and what is in line or contrary to the Word of God. Jesus is also not saying that we as His people never tell someone that they are wrong. Later in that same chapter, if you want to go home and read this for yourself, later in that same chapter, he says, there are two paths, wide and narrow. Some of you are on the wrong path. That's my translation. But he says, basically, some of you are right and some of you are wrong. If you're wrong, get on the right path. What is Jesus saying in these verses? He's also not saying, don't have any hard conversations. So what is he saying? Well, he's calling us to reject the attitude or approach of a Pharisee when we see someone overtaken in sin. See, the Pharisees were never ones to receive criticism themselves. So they would ignore the beam of wood in their own eye trying to get the speck or splinter out of another person's eye. D.A. Carson, a New Testament professor, said this regarding those verses. Jesus does insist that when they follow his instruction and make evaluations and judgments, they must do so without cheap criticism of others, a notoriously difficult requirement. There must be no condensation, or no, condensation no double standard, no sense of superiority, no patronizing sentiment, sentimentality. Christians are never more than poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there is bread. This humble tone ought to characterize all Christian witness. So to ignore and hope it goes away is a temptation that we cannot fall into. Nor the next one, which is this, to excuse and justify the sin. 
So they would reword, if we fall into that one, they would reword verse 1 to this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you should help them by finding a reason to justify their sin. So we say, well, you've seen how broken their marriage is. It's no wonder adultery happened. Have you seen their upbringing? Have you heard about the hard times they went through? It is no wonder that they are addicted to this or that. It's no wonder that they are prone to to move to this escape. Or it's no wonder that they throw themselves into work. Have you seen their life and their situation? And so what happens here is we join them in helping them shift the blame onto someone or something else. I'm not trying to make light of devastating or difficult circumstances. I'm not trying to make those trivial sounding. But at the end of the day, you and I are accountable for our own actions, our own choices. At the end of the day, we won't be able to point a finger and say, well, it's because of this. We will be accountable. Nor can we justify our lack of engagement with our own sin. Well, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm not really in a position right now to come alongside them because I, I got issues. I got things in my life. Listen, you and I will always have issues. You and I will always have remaining sin in our lives. We'll never be free of that. That's not an excuse to run to sin. That's just the reality that, that the flesh will not be completely conquered until we are with the Lord face to face. We shouldn't ignore the beam of wood and be a Pharisee. But we also can't wait to reach this mythical land of perfection. Are you a brother or sister? Are you a brother or sister? If so, you're called. You're called. The next temptation we face when we see someone entangled in in, in sin is, is we gossip about it and we go sideways. So we would say this verse, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should tell other people who are spiritual and ask them to pray and mutually share your sadness about the person's situation. Oh, that's so, so bad for them. And kind of make yourself feel better in that moment. Gossiping about someone's sin, it's never, never led to someone's restoration. Restoration to the Lord or with the Lord's family. It's never led to the mending of someone's life it's only led to further destruction. Matthew 18, 15 specifically says that the first step in engaging in someone's life when they've sinned against you or you see sin in their life is you go to them directly and you go to them privately. You do not go laterally, horizontally, or to someone else. Directly, privately. The last temptation we as brothers and sisters face is we condemn the sinner and we are very harsh. So they would reword verse 1 to, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should condemn them with a haughty tone, a spiritually proud tone, and assume that there is no hope for repentance. Oh, they'll never change. That's the approach of the Pharisee. That's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 7. See, the Pharisees were prone to unwarranted, unjust, unmerciful statements, and as a result, they brought this condemnation rather than a Holy Spirit-inspired conviction. In all those responses, 
we are doing what Paul is telling us not to do in verse 1, to fall into temptation. Yes, he's also addressing that, that for those of us who engage with someone who is overtaken in sin, we can't fall into the same exact sin. Like I've had friends, oh, you have a drinking problem? Here, let me come alongside. Oh, now I have a drinking problem as well. Or your marriage is in crisis? Well, here, let me leave my marriage to try to help you and be your Messiah, and then my own marriage is in crisis. So he's also he, he's, he's doing, he's addressing that as well as well as these other temptations that we can fall into of ignoring or justifying or gossiping or condemning. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. So what's the goal? What's the goal when we see someone not living in a posture of repentance? Well, according to that verse, the goal is restoration. The goal is not to ignore, excuse, justify, gossip, condemn. The goal is to restore. The idea behind the original Greek there is to put in order, to make things right, to restore to its former condition. Used elsewhere in the New Testament, it refers to the mending of fishing nets. So when you see someone with their, their nets torn, do your part in mending their nets. The gospel of God's grace is a story of restoration, where once we restrain, we've returned to the good shepherd, where once there was separation between us and the Lord because of sin, now we've been joined because our sin has been covered by the blood of Christ. The good news of Jesus is that what once was wrong, has gone wrong because of sin, can now be made right, can be mended. And that the gospel is is what not only restores us to the Lord, but to one another. See, we, we want this gospel, this good news, to be central to our ministry and life around this church because it reminds us that not only are unbelievers restored to the Lord through faith, but we are restored in relationship to one another in the family. Cross point, we need to be actively pursuing a church culture that loves one another extravagantly enough that when we see the nets of someone's life tearing, we seek to restore their nets. We need to be taking on the trouble of helping people realize their sin and see it repaired, to take on the burden, carry one another's burdens, to take on the burden of confronting sin. Because if we really love in the way that Jesus first loved us, we're going to not only engage and confront, but we're going to do it in a spirit that is in the fullness of His grace and His truth. So who should be the ones, when we see a believer in sin, engage them? Those who are spiritual, spiritual is what Paul says, meaning those who are led by the Spirit. Believers in Christ grieve the Spirit, disobey the Spirit when we see fellow believers overtaken by sin and don't engage. When he says spiritual, he's not referring to this varsity team of believers okay he's referring to everyday brothers and sisters who are led by the holy spirit who have the holy spirit who are relying on the spirit and not their flesh who are living in the context of a local church family so brothers and sisters not just elders pastors do elders and pastors get involved depending on the situation yes matthew 18 speaks to that 
but confronting sin in the church, engaging with a fellow sibling in the family who has fallen into sin is what every believer who calls a church home is called to. This is what we do as a church together. We repent and we mend nets. We seek to restore. This is what your community group should be doing with one another. This is what your ministry team should be doing with one another. So how do we go about navigating these potentially messy waters? With a spirit of gentleness is what Paul writes. Author and pastor John Stott said this, This verse suggests that gentleness is born of a sense of our own weakness and propensity to sin. If you're not convinced that you need grace as much as the person you're engaging with, you will notoriously come with a spiritually proud heart and a spiritually proud tone. You will not come alongside in gentleness. Gentleness doesn't mean void of truth. Absent of that, it doesn't mean calling wrong right or avoiding the elephant in the room. It does mean, though, speaking the truth in love. It does mean that you'll be patient as you engage in it. It does mean that you'll first address the beam in your own eye before addressing the speck in theirs. So why do we engage? Why do we move toward? Why do we confront a fellow sibling? And why can't we just ignore this? Well, if you skip to verses 7 and 8 in Galatians 6, we find an answer. Don't be deceived, it says. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. A farmer reaps the same as what he has sown. So if it's wheat or corn that he plants, wheat or corn grows up. In the same way, when we sow to the flesh, the flesh will notoriously grow up and it will grow strong and it will flourish. In Galatians 5, Paul lists examples of the flesh. Things like sexual immorality, idolatry, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, drunkenness. If we're planting seeds in those areas of the flesh, that's going to be the pattern that grows up in our lives. Paul gives a very sobering warning in Galatians 5 that that those who do that will not inherit the kingdom of God. In the same way, thinking about this analogy of planting, what is sown also spreads, right? That's what you hope your grass seed happens. An apple uh, has seeds in it. It's intended to spread and not just produce one apple. So in practical terms, when it comes to sowing seeds of the flesh, it's going to have this exponential nature in our lives. It's going to impact others. It's going to impact families around the person. It's going to impact friends around this person, the community around this person. So what Paul is saying is when you see someone overtaken in sin, it would be cruel to not pursue them. For if you loved them, you don't want them to reap destruction. You don't want them, you don't want the flesh to win in their life. You want rather restoration to occur so that seeds of the Spirit might grow up in love, joy, peace, patience, and the, and the fruit of the Spirit talked about in Galatians 5 would grow up which in the same way has a flourishing effect on the people around them. As much as seeds of the flesh do, seeds of the Spirit has that much more God-glorifying effect on those around the person. We move toward those whose nets are torn 
Because we not only love the brother or sister, but we love the people around them. We love the church that they are a part of. So what do we do if we continue to see a pattern of sin in someone's life? What if we're seeing the entanglement, entanglement of sin only get worse or repentance not take place? Maybe even a hardening of the person's heart. What do we do then when we see them keep sowing seeds of the flesh and not the spirit? Again, for that counsel, we want to turn to the Word of God and not our own wisdom. For His ways and His thoughts, according to the book of Isaiah, are higher than our own. So we want to look to, the God, look to God's Word for that pattern. And then Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of one testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. What that passage in Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 5 and elsewhere in the New Testament is referring to is what's commonly called church discipline or God's discipline through the church. A couple years ago, as an elder team, we articulated several biblical convictions we have as a church. You can find them on our web website under uh, who we are, I believe. But, uh, but one of those was on God's discipline through the church. And I just want to read that to you. As God's people, we are called to live in community, not only with the Lord, but with one another in the church family. The New Testament gives us a picture of a family of believers who walk side by side as they follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, fighting the good fight of faith. Because of our remaining sin and God's relentless love for us, He is continually shaping and disciplining us through His Word and Spirit, finishing the work that He has begun. As His people, we join Him in this work, living alongside one another, speaking the truth in love, and bearing with one another in love. When a believer in Christ is in a practice of unrepentant sin, fellow church family members are called by God to seek to restore this person in a spirit of gentleness. This is done out of love for the person, for the church, and for the church's testimony and for the glory of God. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 describes a process which helps us understand how a church family can together pursue the spiritual restoration of a sinning member. It describes four steps, and in each step, the goal is restoration. Number one, tell him his sin alone. Number two, lovingly confront the one who is sinning with one or two other believers. Number three, tell the church of his sin and ask the church to prayerfully pursue him in love with a heart of restoration. And number four, given a persistent unwillingness of the sinner to hear and respond to the loving pursuit of his church, the church must conclude that he is an unbeliever and, to, and together agree to treat him accordingly. At this point, the member would be removed from membership at Crosspoint. So with each step, the believers, the brothers and sisters involved is expanding. That circle is expanding. And the role of elders and shepherds, their role is escalating. We looked at elders last week, but one thing that Hebrews 13 tells us about elders is that they are charged to look after the souls of the sheep that they, that they have been entrusted to in their flock. That is a sobering, sobering verse for me as a pastor. It is one that stirs up my desire to shepherd you well for the Lord. Because one day, elders will give an account to the Lord for the souls that they have been entrusted with. 
The goal in all of this is not condemnation. It's not punishment. It's a warning that we pray leads to a restoration of a relationship to the Lord as well as the Lord's people. So why does the circle expand? Why does the role of leaders escalate? One simple reason is verses 7 and 8 in Galatians 6. The Lord is not mocked by sin. He is holy and just. And we want to see, we pray to see the seeds of the Spirit sown in someone's life and not the seeds of the flesh. Because we want to see eternal life reaped. We want to see abundant life reaped on this earth. We want to see abundant life and joy happen not only in that person's life, but in the lives that call that person friend or family. Our God's love is relentless. We worship a God who pursues the lost sheep, who rejoices when that sheep returns, who died while we were still sinners. So we are to reflect that same relentless love. Love for the Lord, love for the person entangled, and love for those yet to be reached and the outward testimony of the church. That's what compels us to pursue the spiritual restoration of a Crosspoint member overtaken by sin. God's discipline through the church is not something that occurs for just casual attenders, passerbys, or unbelievers. Paul specifically commands us in 1 Corinthians 5 to not judge those outside the church. Because why would we expect or anticipate someone who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't follow the Lord to live how the Lord has called them to live? Rather, it is together. We as the church family, on the inside of the church, fellow brothers and sisters who signed the membership covenant, who are desiring to live out habits such as growing fully and loving extravagantly and living interdependently and walking graciously and speaking truthfully, who have said, this is my church home. These are the believers who, I, who I'm living alongside, who I'm committed to walk in the light with, to live in a posture of repentance and live out to one another's in Scripture, including carrying one another's burdens. There are a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to God's discipline through the church. I don't have time to get into all the misunderstandings. One of, one of them, though, is we just see this as a formal process where elders are involved, where it gets really, really messy, gets church-wide, and those kind of things. The reality is, is it begins in Galatians 6.1. That's why I spent the vast majority of my time on this message in Galatians 6.1, because that's where it begins. That's what we're called to. It has the potential of getting to steps further down the road. We pray it never will because we want to be a church that lives out Galatians 6.1, that lives out a spirit of gentleness, speaking the truth in love, desiring restoration alongside. We want to be a church, a community of Christ followers who are dedicated to one another, who when we see a fellow brother or sister overtaken in sin, we move toward we pursue, we engage, we confront in love. We reject the temptation to ignore, justify, gossip, condemn, and we engage in relationship and conversation in a spirit of humility and gentleness with a spirit of patience, speaking the truth in love, fully aware that we are fellow believers in need of God's grace and fellow siblings being transformed by that grace and by that truth together 
seeking to walk in the light of God's holiness and grace. Together, laying aside the sin that can so easily entangle our lives. Together, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Together, day by day, growing to be more like the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. Not only for the sake of our own hearts, for the sake of our church family, but for the sake of those yet to be reached. That's the type of biblical family that we've been called to, Crosspoint. Together, we repent and together we restore. If the worship team could come back up. Listen to what Paul says later in Galatians 6. and In verses 9 and 10, he says this. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Church, one way we do good is to live out verse 1 and pursue the one overtaken, trapped, entangled in sin. Because here's the reality. At the end of the day, you and I would want others to do that for us. Because one day it could be us. And we would want someone to love us enough to engage with us, pursue us, confront us. Therefore, especially within the household of faith, as we have opportunity, let us do good to one another so that the seeds of the Spirit might flourish tenfold, a hundredfold, and not only bring life to the person, but life to those around them. Father God, I pray that you would bring about in our community of faith a desire to carry one another's burdens, to engage with one another in the messiness of life. I pray for our own hearts that we would be uh, followers of you who would desire to walk in the light with the brothers and sisters around us. That when we are tempted to hide or run, that we would understand that it is the gospel of God's grace that invites us to return, invites us to run back to you in prayer, knowing that we are saved by grace and not by works and not by our own ability to obey. I pray that as a church you would transform us both individually and corporately more and more into your image. Give us opportunity in the year and years ahead to mend one another's nets. And Holy Spirit, may you do that work. Help us simply to be hands and feet and to trust you to do the work. Give us receptive and humble hearts as you transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up and worship. 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, verses 12 and 13 say this, And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May He make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Amen. Meet somebody new before you leave. See you back next week. God bless.